Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jay Panica, who is a consultant neurologist at the Walton Centre and is a specialist in movement disorders. Hi, Dr. Panica. Hi. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us today. So today's podcast is on a, a very specific topic, which is the topic of myoclonus. So before listening to this, uh, if listeners aren't familiar with movement disorders, they might want to listen to our talk we do with Michael Bonello on an introduction to movement disorders. Um, but today, what I'd like to do is just start by asking you quite a general question, really, which is what do we mean by uh, the term myoclonus? Sure. Okay. So myoclonus, uh, the word itself just means muscle jerking. Uh, that's essentially what it is, really. And uh, of course, uh, all, all these what we call as the uh, movement disorders are in a way muscle jerking. So we have to be more specific than that. So uh, it sits in the, as John earlier mentioned, it sits in the spectrum of what we call as the hyperkinetic movement disorders. So when we talk about hyperkinetic movement disorders, they come in several different varieties. So so how do we classify the hyperkinetic movement disorders, first of all? So hyperkinetic movement disorders, there are rhythmic movements like tremors. Then you have non-rhythmic movements uh, where there are, uh, for example, there are movements with sustained postures like dystonia. Mm-hmm. You can get slow movements like um, athetosis and fast movements, one of which is myoclonus. So myoclonus is a brief lightning-like muscle jerking. Mm-hmm. And then there are, of course, there are other kind of fast movements so where there are suppressible, relatively fast movements like ticks uh, and stereotypies, then there are non-suppressible movements, uh, which we already talked about myoclonus. Then there are other sort of movements like chorea, which is a, like a kind of a much slower pattern of movement. Usually there is a flowing character to it. That's um, how you uh, differentiate chorea uh, from other movements. And then, of course, there are kind of much more proximal kind of rapid flinging movements like uh, balismus. So this is kind of how we kind of roughly classify the different hyperkinetic movement disorders. And myoclonus uh, is probably the, you know, the fastest of the whole lot of hyperkinetic movement disorders. So it's a very fast Mm -hmm. muscle twitch. It's lightning like some people describe it as. And um, um, it it is, it can be kind of very complex. So it can be a, it can be what we call as a positive uh, myoclonus where there is a spontaneous muscle jerking or it can be a negative myoclonus where mm. it's actually a loss of muscle activity. So this can cause a rapid loss in muscle tone and it can, uh, if it, it affects axial muscles, it can cause patients to drop down to the floor mm. or the much more kind of common example is the asterixis which you see in hepatic encephalopathy mm. where there's a sudden um, drop in the posture of the hands. Okay, so so I guess in in summary there, so it's a it's a hyperkinetic movement disorder, and it's non-suppressible, so that yeah. would differentiate it from say something like a tic disorder, yeah. and it's very fast, and it's the speed that might differentiate it from yeah. uh, perhaps some of the other things like an athetosis or a career form. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I I think you, most of most of the time myoclonus can be fairly easily differentiated from the other movements, but there are some specific situations. Um, mm-hmm where it can cause confusion. So mm. I myself actually have uh, uh, mistaken ticks for myoclonus once or twice. Mm. Um, so the ticks, the importance is in the history. It is actually a suppressible movement and usually there is a preceding sensory discomfort and and there is a release phenomenon which is uh, kind of patient uh, senses some easing of the discomfort with the movement itself. Hmm. So ticks can sometimes cause confusion, yeah. especially if it is a very kind of focal tick. So ticks usually kind of affect different body parts, but there are rare occasions where it may just affect the neck or the shoulder muscles on its own and where it can cause a bit of confusion. Okay. Yeah. So, so actually in, in sort of clinical practice, when the suspicion is of myoclonus, you're not really, you know, you, you're kind of already narrowing it down. If you're thinking it could be myoclonus, you're thinking more myoclonus versus tick. That, that's uh, no, of, sorry. No. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean that. But what I was just saying was there are specific situations that you have to think about. Yeah, yeah. For example, if you see a young patient with a label, diagnostic label of essential tremor, yeah. again, thing is this myoclonus. Because okay. essential tremor, of course, it has a biphasic age of onset. It can have, uh, you know, quite early age of onset. But... Uh, very often, what happens is that patients can have, uh, for example, conditions like myoclonus dystonia 
can mm. the patients can present with a bit of upper limb uh myoclonic tremors which can actually cause confusion and how you differentiate that is when you actually examine patients with essential tremor you ask them to hold the hands outstretched and if you actually check for stimulus sensitivity by just simply giving a gentle tap to the fingers yeah that that will kind of tell you if it is uh, myoclonic or uh, just a postural tremor okay um again another kind of specific situation where it can kind of be mistaken is ataxia believe it or not so um when patients have for example neg- severe negative myoclonus affecting the different body parts um especially if it affects the posture it can cause falls and um when patients have action myoclonus it can look like an intention tremor because it's mainly on action okay so so all of those things can cause confusion with um, ataxia so myoclonus can be mislabeled as ataxia and to complicate matters mm. even more you can get progressive myoclonic ataxia or progressive myoclonic epilepsy syndromes where you get a combination of both okay but it's important to recognize the myoclonic element to the syndrome simply because that will kind of help you narrow down your differential diagnosis great and i th- i guess with with uh, anything like this where there's a complexity uh in how you approach the the diagnosis it's good to have quite a structured approach and yeah. really try and think logically yeah. through things so we'll go through your your diagnostic approach in a minute but yeah. i guess to begin with like how do we classify myoclonus we're using it as kind of a an umbrella term so far but yeah. you've already alluded to the fact there are different ways you might you might think about it yeah absolutely so uh so the myoclonus uh, because because there are if you look at the complete list of causes of myoclonus there are something like 250 causes listed in some oh, textbooks so exactly. it is very difficult yep. to kind of get a grip on uh, uh, myoclonus so this is why uh, people have grappled with how to approach a patient who has myoclonus um, and how how do you actually classify it and mm. uh, j- just because of that there are various ways in which people have tried to think of myoclonus so for example uh, people have tried to classify it based on which part of the body is affected uh like you know you can it can be kind of uh, a multifocal myoclonus depending on the you know if the limbs are affected or it can be a focal myoclonus mm-hmm. people have tried to classify it based on um based on uh, what are the triggers for example it can be an action myoclonus or it can be a resting myoclonus or it can be um it can be stimulus sensitive so that is another way of trying to classify myoclonus hmm. and uh, then of course um there is another classification called as etiological classification so for example um uh, there is a physiological myoclonus of hypnic jerks we have all experienced it when we go off to sleep you can have a brief twitching of the muscle so that's physiological or epileptic myoclonus again this is another etiological subtype of myoclonus epileptic myoclonus or uh, then there is this other uh, just like essential tremors there is a small group of patients called essential myoclonus where the cause is not clear mm-hmm. and symptomatic myoclonus of course where there is an underlying neurodegenerative or some other etiological process causing it so there so there are kind of different ways mm-hmm. in which you can classify myoclonus we'll go into just a few of those i guess um i've heard other people talk about in terms of like the neuroanatomy as well so like Absolutely. cortical subcortical spinal yeah. proprio-spinal so is is do you find that useful as well as uh... yeah absolutely so the, so i was going to come to that so uh, even though the you know the the older ways of classifying myoclonus are always helpful they have all been superseded by this new way of classifying myoclonus based on anatomical origin simply because um if we can actually localize it anatomically it is closely linked to the etiology of the myoclonus mm-hmm. so the um so the anatomical classification essentially if you start from the very top you can start with the cortical myoclonus um obviously as the name suggests it's originating from the cortex or it can be the subcortical myoclonus so subcortical myoclonus we talk about originating from the brain stem mm-hmm. or from the basal ganglia and then of course you have the spinal origin myoclonus from the spinal cord or peripheral which is kind of like a neuromuscular cause for it so these are the kind of uh, how we kind of broadly classify mm. uh, uh, the myoclonus anatomically mm. and they kind of kind of closely link in with the etiology as well so i think most of the movement disorder neurologists would prefer this classification yeah of myoclonus okay so you've mentioned about the different ways myoclonus is classified but also it sounds like quite useful clinically is this anatomical classification system so if i if i'm seeing a patient and uh, you know based on initial sort of history and examination findings i'm suspicious this could be myoclonus 
So how how am I going to you know be a bit more certain about perhaps where anatomically it's anatomical coming from? location? Okay, great. Yeah. So first of all, one thing to remember is that uh, cortical myoclonus is probably the commonest subtype of myoclonus, mm. followed by the subcortical myoclonus. The spinal and peripheral uh, myoclonus are much more rare uh, compared to cortical and subcortical myoclonus. So cortical myoclonus, you have to remember, so because it's cortical origin, you have to think of the areas which have the largest cortical representation in the mm. body. So that is the face and uh, the distal part of the upper limbs, which have the largest cortical representation. So those are the co areas which are most commonly affected mm. by cortical myoclonus. Uh, but having said that, it can also often be multifocal, so it can affect other parts of the body. It can be bilateral. If you are, if you have a very uh, keen eye, you may be able to pick up a rostrocaudal gradient when you actually see it. But it's very difficult because it's such a fast movement. Uh, but uh, if you take a video and slow it down, you may be able to do a rostrocaudal. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that, sir? So uh, starting from the head and kind of you know uh, going distally, that kind of gradient may be seen in cortical microns. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if it is kind of multifocal, um, it, it can it can press it be present at rest, but it's much more commonly action or stimulus sensitive. And uh, um, when it is stimulus sensitive, uh, it is typically to touch. You get the jerking, and uh, uh, it can either be positive or negative myoclonus. So it mm. can actually present with a sudden loss of posture or as a positive jerking movement. And um, I told you earlier that neurophysiology is very helpful. Mm. It is quite helpful in that, uh, so the cortical myoclonus is very, very brief. So the duration, so if you put in an EMG needle and uh, uh, check the duration of the CMAP amplitude, it will be less than 50 milliseconds. So that mm. really helps. Uh, so, so cortical origin myoclonus, so even if you, you, even if you don't go for much more complex neurophysiological testing, if you can just, uh, if you have an EMG machine to hand and if you can just, uh, uh, put in a needle and check out the CMAP amplitude, you'll find mm. that it's less than 50 milliseconds and that's actually a cortical origin myoclonus. So, so uh, listeners might be familiar with the term sort of myoclonic epilepsy. Yeah. As, when, when we talk about cortical myoclonus, are we using that term to mean sort of myoclonic epilepsy or is it, which, which is obviously a generalized seizure disorder, is this a yeah. generalized cortical problem or can it be a focal cortical problem presenting with myoclonus? Of course it can be, yeah. So, so the uh, myoclonic epilepsies, both juvenile myoclonic epilepsy and uh, progressive myoclonic epilepsy, they're all the prototypical syndromes which mm. cause uh, cortical myoclonus. But it can be, as you suggested, it can be due to a kind of a, it can be a very focal form of myoclonus arising from a cortical abnormality. Or it doesn't always have to be epilepsy. So it's not always epilepsy. Uh, so even uh, if you remember prion disease, CJD, like mm. you see the EEG abnormalities uh, correlating with the myoclonic activity. So yeah. uh, uh, SSP and CJD are uh, two neurodegenerative conditions where you get cortical myoclonus. And um, um, so it is It is kind of uh, cortical origin myoclonus. So uh, I don't know if you've come across patients with Parkinsonian disorders having this thing, condition called polymini myoclonus. Yeah. This is kind yeah, of very yeah. brief distal twitching in the limbs, which can look like a peripheral myoclonus. But yeah. it's actually cortical origin as well. Oh, right, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. So these are all different examples of cortical origin myoclonus. So it's not just epilepsy. It, yeah, it can yeah. be other conditions as well. Yeah. Okay. And is it is it rare for cortical myoclonus to be the sole manifestation of neurological disease? Like, does it tend to accompany other symptoms or can it just be a myoclonus? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, so that will actually take us to the uh, okay. next subtype of uh, of uh, myoclonus or the subcortical myoclonus. So, for example, uh, the, when there is basal ganglia uh, as when it's a generator for myoclonus, you can actually get um, something called essential myoclonus, where myoclonus is the sole manifestation. You don't get any other neurological symptoms, mm. um, or even in uh, this condition called myoclonus dystonia. Myoclonus may be the dominant feature. You may not get to see much dystonia. So. Uh, so it can be it can be a sole presentation, uh, a neurological presentation, but that's extremely rare. So okay. usually myoclonus is a part of a complex neurological syndrome where there are a lot of other things going on, like okay. ataxia, dystonia, okay. uh, cognitive uh, impairment, things like that. Yes. As neurologists, we often get to um, get asked to go to see patients in ITU to assess um, post cardiac arrest uh, to do some prognostication. So that is one common situation where we may come across myoclonus because post-cardiac arrest patients, 
um, something like a um, something like a uh, close to a quarter of patients will have some myoclonic activity, and um, and that is again something that is thought to originate from the cortex, hmm. and that is kind of traditionally it used to be considered a poor prognostic sign if you have quite florid myoclonus but now we know that that's not always the case mm. but if somebody has what we call a status myoclonus which is kind of continuous rhythmic myoclonus with uh, eg correlates that is usually a very poor prognostic sign so there are some studies which suggest 100 percent fatality mm. with, with that kind of sign okay so that is kind of a cortical another example of a cortical origin myoclonus yeah and then um, there is the chronic post-hypoxic myoclonus, Lance Adams syndrome, it's called. Yeah. So this is where patients develop myoclonus several weeks after the cardiac arrest. And uh, it actually manifests with severe action myoclonus. So when patients uh, try to pick up a cup or use a pen, they will have quite severe uh, myoclonus, which can mimic like an intention tremor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can look ataxic, but what they actually have is a severe action myoclonus. And they can often get negative myoclonus affecting the axial muscles causing them to fall as well. So these are all other examples of um, cortical myoclonus. Okay. Um, yeah, excellent. So and then moving on to the to the next level down, so the subcortical myoclonus. Yeah. So just, just to start with, I mean, what, what do you mean by subcortical? Are you referring to a particular area of the subcortical region or in, in general the subcortex? Yeah, so to make matters confusing, some people actually use subcortical myoclonus, uh, the term to denote uh, myoclonus originating from anywhere from the uh you know all, all the sub to encompass all the subcortical areas but uh, uh, most movement disorder neurologists and you know if you look at the literature it would kind of mainly denote uh, myoclonus originating from the brainstem and mm. the basal ganglia yeah so those are the two areas which we kind of generally denote when we call it subcortical myoclonus mm. so how do you kind of know about uh, uh, subcortical myoclonus so subcortical myoclonus has kind of slightly different um features to cortical myoclonus. Uh, so the duration is a little bit longer than uh, cortical myoclonus. So if you, again, if you go by neurophysiology, it is actually the CMAP amplitude, when you put in an EMG needle, it will be much wider. So it's usually anything between 50 to 300 milliseconds. So for cortical, it was less than 50. So it's a much kind of larger duration mm. of myoclonus. Uh, it is often at rest rest myoclonus rather than a kind of action uh, myoclonus so that's um, one way of differentiating and uh, often it can be kind of stimulus sensitive as well so uh, those are the kind of uh, clinical characters and uh, um, uh, so myoclonus it's more of a generalized myoclonus rather than what we talked about cortical myoclonus being multifocal yeah so those are the ways in which you can actually distinguish it um, from the cortical myoclonus. Okay, and and what would be the, the common causes of a subcortical myoclonus? Yeah, subcortical myoclonus, there are again, once again, unfortunately, there are several different causes. So um, again, as I said earlier, you can classify, uh, you can subclassify it into whether it is originating from the brainstem or uh, whether it is coming from, uh, uh, from the basal ganglia. So if you think about the brainstem myoclonus, the commonest, um, uh, physiological form of brainstem myoclonus is startle. We all get startled sometimes, so it's essentially a brainstem myoclonus. But there are pathological forms of brainstem myoclonus as well. For example, there are children with uh, glycine receptor mutations who can actually have a pathological startle. We call it hyperplexia. Hmm. Um, and um, and then, of course, adult onset startle syndromes you come across in conditions like the progressive encephalomyelitis with rigidity and myoclonus, the PERM syndromes, PRM syndromes, which can be due to several different antibodies, including yeah. GAD, glycine, um, DPPX1 antibodies. So, so all of these antibodies have been Im- implicated in those kinds of um, uh, encephalitis and, uh, and this kind of brainstem myoclonus is a significant part of the clinical syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas if you talk about the basal ganglia origin syndrome, the, uh, the, the typical example is the myoclonus dystonia syndrome. So it usually starts in childhood, as I mentioned earlier. So it, you get myoclonic kind of jerks in combination with mild dystonia usually. So it's usually in the neck. And uh, the characteristic feature is alcohol responsiveness. Hmm. So if you see somebody who has a diagnostic label of essential tremor uh, from a you know, which goes back many years, young, relatively young age of onset, and often they have a history of 
alcoholism as well simply because they are actually trying to suppress the tremor with the alcohol mm. then always think about the possibility of micronus dystonia because how you manage it is quite different yeah. and it's quite responsive to deep brain stimulation and often these patients have a lot of psychiatric uh, problems as well so there can be history of anxiety depression obsessive compulsive disorder those kind of conditions can also be there yeah and i, I guess as well so it's, you know the misdiagnosis of essential tremor there could also be cuz people are looking at the alcohol responsiveness and thinking yeah. that that's yeah. um, that's the clue for essential tremor but actually that you shouldn't think alone of that i guess if you're hearing yes exactly alcohol so responsiveness. yeah because microneurodegeneration responds very well to alcohol yeah. and and again the, uh, as i said the relatively young age of onset is the clue there so usually they yeah. kind of what sort of age would you would be young onset so you? as children or as young adolescent that's the kind of age group when you actually yeah. uh, get the age of onset in microneurodegeneration dystonia and it's not a somatic dominant condition just like essential tremor so you'll get a positive family history in majority of instances okay So as a movement disorder as a general neurologist I often get asked to go and see patients on a medical ward for myoclonus um and that is often due to metabolic conditions so there are a long there's a long list of metabolic conditions which can cause myoclonus and all of them have basal ganglia origin actually so the your hepatic failure renal failure a whole host of medications um you know acid base yeah. disturbances all of this causing myoclonus it's usually due to uh due to a basal ganglia being the generator of the myoclonus and i cannot stress enough the number of times um that i see drugs as a cause of myoclonus so all the common medications that is used um which have kind of effects on the brain like um whatever drug you can think of so for example ssris uh, gabapentin uh, pregabalin type of medications all of these group of medications uh, even levodopa so all of these group of medications so whenever patients are on antidepressants antipsychotics and uh, if they when you see them having myoclonic twitching always consider the possibility that it could be a drug induced myoclonus yeah uh, so all of them actually are uh, brain stem um, sorry basal ganglia generated uh, myoclonic disorders um then we should not forget uh, when we talk about brainstem myoclonus we should not forget the palatal myoclonus so which is again a sort of a segmental myoclonus originating from the brainstem so you have the essential palatal myoclonus and the symptomatic palatal myoclonus due to lesions in the molaris triangle so mm. i won't go into the details of that yeah. but uh, we have Something to keep those things in mind yeah does it tend to be a positive or negative myoclonus with subcortical or can it be both Uh, like so usually it is positive myoclonus okay uh, uh, most of the uh, times it is actually positive myoclonus okay excellent so so just to summarize that so cortical myoclonus in general can be positive or negative uh, it tends to be multifocal um typically although can affect anywhere affecting the areas that have large cortical representation so the face and kind of the, the distal arms yeah. and um you might look for that stimulus responsiveness yeah. to it uh you know and, and plus or minus other neurological uh, problems that that could accompany yeah. cortical myoclonus where subcortical tends to be more positive rather than negative and the distribution is more generalized yeah and um you're really thinking there about things that are affecting the basal ganglia or the brain stem and trying to separate those two yeah. out yeah. at the bedside yeah. i mean do do you think i mean you you're obviously very experienced you've seen a lot of myoclonus you mentioned about the the duration uh, is that something that you think a, an experienced eye can actually pick out at the bedside or is that something that is more neurophysiologically important yeah to be honest like you would rely more on neurophysiology rather than um rather than just visual inspection <laughs> cortical myoclonus because of such a brief duration it's usually quite helpful uh, where it can really help is differentiating it from functional myoclonus if i'm honest because functional jerking is something where the duration is uh, of, of the where the cmap amplitude or the duration of the jerking is much much wider okay so yeah, again yeah. that is where it is usually helpful but to differentiate a cortical from subcortical for example for the naked eye to differentiate a 50 microsecond cortical myoclonus from an 80 yeah. microsecond subcortical okay. no not really unless that, that, you're no, a superman no, you can't that's certainly reassuring okay yeah. I, 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 i wouldn't have doubted maybe you could but um okay excellent so where, where do we move now from uh, subcortical where, where then next? we move on to spinal don't we mm. and and sorry going back to the point that you raised about um so often uh, much more commonly 
how we actually differentiate is based on the associated clinical features. Mm. So for example, cortical myoclonus, when you see that in the context of somebody with cognitive impairment, you are actually thinking of certain etiologies and then you know that yeah. it's kind of likely cortical origin. Whereas if somebody you see with relatively young onset with myoclonus and an element of dystonia, then you are immediately thinking of myoclonus dystonia as a diagnosis. So yeah. the associated features usually help rather yeah, than yeah. kind of the uh, duration on its own. But there are specific situations, as I said, like functional jerking where the duration can be helpful, yes. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so moving on to the, to the spinal cord. Spinal now. myoclonus, yeah. So spinal cord, um, so the classical sort of spinal um, myoclonus that... Uh, we all see is actually functional. So originally it used to be called proprio-spinal myoclonus. Uh, this is where people get sort of jerking involved the trunk. Uh, so axial flexion jerking, which can involve the neck, the trunk, and often the hips. And mm. it's usually kind of uh, neurophysiologically, people used to say it's a frequency of one to six hertz, because that's what we can volitionally uh, do in the trunk, the, the rate of movements. And the, again, as I mentioned earlier, the EMG bus are much, much longer. And nowadays, we use neurophysiology to help us diagnose uh, this very, very well. So it is kind of a, uh, it has become much more straightforward with neurophysiological techniques. So there is something called as a buried shaft potential, which can be picked up on the, uh, so on, on combined EEG and EMG study. So what you do is um, you put multi-channel EMG in the uh, spinal uh, muscles, paraspinal muscles, and you do EEG recording simultaneously. And when you look back, uh, when you do back averaging, and when you look back immediately preceding the uh, EMG, you can actually see volitional motor activity from the uh, uh, motor cortex, and that will actually, uh, this is called a buried shaft potential, and that actually helps you to diagnose functional jerking mm. relatively easily nowadays. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, so there was one large case series which looked at this and it was found that practically all of them are functional. So it is considered a pure functional movement disorder now. Um, so there is something called spinal segmental myoclonus. So this is kind of slightly different in that, for example, if you th can think of a focal lesion, like a demyelinating lesion in the spinal cord, um, so you can actually get rhythmical jerking only affecting uh, the muscle groups innervated by those particular spinal segments. Mm. So for example, um, you can have a rhythmic jerking affecting just one upper limb, uh, only, only for example C5 to C8 or something like that. You can, depending on where exactly you have the lesion in the cord. Mm. So that's called spinal segmental myoclonus. And it's actually, uh, that goes against the rule of it being a uh, brief lightning-like jerk. So spinal segmental myoclonus is extremely rare. And what you see is a continuous rhythmical sort of movement. and. Uh, I have seen it only once or twice in uh, in the past 10 years. So it's extremely rare. And you, what you see is a kind of sometimes a sinusoidal rhythmical uh, type of movement. Uh, but it is defined as a myoclonus, spines, mm. called spinal segmental myoclonus. So only a few segments of the uh, uh, spine, uh, spinal cord are affected. Okay. And uh, so it will manifest in that way. So only a few contiguous uh, uh, myotomes will be affected when you look at the patient. Okay. So that's the pathological form of spinal myoclonus. Okay. And, and obviously, so neuroanatomically, one would think it's fairly intuitive that a spinal or appropriate spinal myoclonus, although perhaps we shouldn't be using that term, would only affect from the neck down. Yeah. Um, whereas, I guess, maybe the cortical and subcortical are more likely to involve the face and... Um, yeah, yeah, and the limbs. Is that is that a that, fair that's, comment? That's that's a fair comment. Yes, absolutely. So spinal myoclonus, as the name suggests, only will affect uh, you know the uh, directly the uh, myotomes, um, depending on which uh, yeah. part of the spine or spinal segments are involved. Yes, that's right. Okay. So so again, the, you actually hit the nail on the head when you mentioned it. For example, even in brainstem myoclonus. If you do a multi-channel EMG, you can see a clear rostrocaudal gradient. So you can see muscles uh, getting affected in a sequence, starting from the cranial muscles, lower cranial muscles. For example, if it's a brainstem myoclonus, you can see the muscles getting affected in a sequence, starting from the lower facial muscles and then going down in a sequence. Hmm. Um, so that will tell you that it's a brainstem or in myoclonus. And that's, again, one way of kind of neurophysiologically diagnosing it. Okay. And then... Um Beyond spinal myoclonus, where is there anywhere else in the neuroaxis to... Yes, unfortunately, there is. So you have a peripheral myoclonus as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you, uh, so, so some, sometimes you can have um, neuropathies where you can actually get a peripheral myoclonus. Mm. If, if, if some people, when 
they have muscle denervation of any kind uh, for example radiculopathies you can get a peripheral myoclonus so it usually kind of manifests with a kind of a peripheral like a polymini myoclonus like kind yeah. of very distal very fine twitching of the uh, for example the fingers and the toes things like that that's how it often manifests peripheral myoclonus yeah Okay, excellent. So that that's a really um, thorough rundown of the the various sites in the nervous system it may be yeah. originating from and some of the causes. Yeah. I, I guess I mean what I'm taking away from a lot of that is what you know what often movement disorder specialists seem to tell us in these episodes, which is that really it starts at the bedside with history and an examination and. To, to be honest, if you've not really narrowed it down at that point, um, the tests are used to help support your hypothesis rather than give you the answer. Um, so what would be your general clinical approach to a patient where with suspected myoclonus? I guess uh, in particular, what are the things you, you definitely want to know or definitely want to test at the bedside? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, when we talk about the clinical approach to myoclonus, I should mention that um, the Movement Disorder Society have come up with guidelines on how you um, how you uh, approach a case of myoclonus, and uh, they have stressed on early neurophysiological testing as a way to approaching myoclonus. So there have been some recent uh, articles about uh, resorting to early neurophysiological testing so that you can anatomically localize the problem mm. fairly early and then uh, go by the differential diagnosis. But as you know, like neurophysiological testing is not always easy to obtain everywhere, especially if you are in a district general hospital. And so um, I generally tend to follow the old uh, clinical approach to myoclonus. So uh, again, myoclonus is usually not a, is not the sole manifestation of a neurological disorder. There are usually other things going on as well. So how I approach a case is, first of all, I look at the age of onset of myoclonus. I look at how it is starting off, like is it an acute onset or is it like a more like a chronic problem? And uh, is the clinical syndrome dominated by myoclonus or do you have other neurological features as well? Mm -hmm. Are there kind of precipitating uh, factors or alleviating factors? You will look at the past medical history very carefully, looking at metabolic problems. You would want to know the family history drug history which is very important um, travel history and um, as i mentioned associated symptoms like epilepsy ataxia cognitive decline all of those are quite important so if we talk about each of this in turn so if the if the age of onset is quite young age of onset and it's purely kind of or at least mostly a myoclonic syndrome and nothing much else going on so there are no cognitive issues there is no epilepsy not much of ataxia then you would start thinking on the lines of could this be myoclonus dystonia and you would kind of ask about any alcohol responsiveness and mm -hmm. if it is there you would probably proceed straight to myoclonus dystonia genetic testing mm. uh, you would check for epsilon sarcoglycan gene and that is the gene that is positive in majority of cases even though there are other yeah. causes as well and you said that dystonia can sometimes be very mild subtle yes to, to pick can up. be subtle so yeah. you shouldn't be put off if if you're not finding as a, as a generalist if you're not seeing dystonia yeah 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 so you should not be put off too much if everything else fits yeah you, you should think about myoclonus dystonia um whereas on the other hand if it's a very young age of onset with a lot of other neurological features so for example if there is a history of epilepsy then you would immediately start thinking on the lines of progressive myoclonic epilepsy or progressive myoclonic ataxia syndromes um, so previously they used to be called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, like there are quite a few different conditions which can actually manifest like that. So um, it, it's a fairly long list, but uh, not to go into too much of detail about it, but these are all autosomal, majority of them at least are autosomal recessive conditions um, where there are varying combinations of ataxia, epilepsy, myoclonus and cognitive impairment. So the uh, the first uh, defined condition was this condition called Lundberg, uh, Lundberg disease or the Baltic myoclonus mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, where kind of progression is fairly rapid and patients die usually by the time they are in their 20s. Uh, then there are a few other conditions as well. They are all extremely rare uh, like Lafora border disease and neuroceral lipofusinosis, things like that. But uh, most of them have childhood onset but there are some uh, as other, uh, there are some which can have adult onset. So as adult neurologists, we need to know about them. Mm. So you can have uh, this condition called uh, um, uh, DERPLA. It is mm. long named endotorubropaldolysial atrophy. So it can actually have an adult onset where epilepsy, myoclonus, ataxia, 
cognitive impairment and sometimes Parkinson's as well. All of these can occur together. You can have uh, mitochondrial disease, MERRF, uh, which can present as a progressive myoclonic epilepsy. Again, you can have um, usually onset as a young adult or uh, late teens. You can have the age of onset at that stage. Uh, extremely rarely you can have um, um, adult onset of Gauche's disease. So as you know, Gauche's disease usually it's quite uh, young onset, but uh, there are uh, rare situations where you can have the adult onset, especially the neurological presentation can be the first presentation. But often there are other markers as well, like hematological manifestations, yeah. hepatosplenomegaly, those kind of things are there. Um, uh, uh, disease. So there are a group of, uh, so we should not forget the progressive myoclonic yeah. epilepsy pro or slash progressive myoclonic ataxia syndromes when we see young uh, a very uh, young age of onset of uh, myoclonus yeah. uh, with other conditions if so it that, is so that seems quite a nice clear thing there so if they're young on young onset and myoclonus is the main issue yeah. you're thinking more myoclonus dystonia yeah if it's the other things you've just talked about the clues really will come from the other um, other neurological components of those syndromes so yeah. so not sort of blanket testing for those things no unless no. those uh, yeah. yeah yeah so also in many of these conditions there are often big clinical clues anyway yeah so for example with uh, Gauch's disease uh, as you know like you can get a kind of a horizontal kind of gaze uh, problem and uh, similarly with Nyman pixie you can have a vertical gaze problem so those kind of yeah. uh, clues can can be there um, so moving on to kind of if it is adult onset you will again want to know if it is an acute onset or a subacute onset thing acute obviously it's you are immediately thinking about toxins mm -hmm. um, uh, drugs so lot of uh, drugs as we talked about them already like anti-epileptics SSRIs all these uh, tricyclics all these medications opioids we shouldn't forget gabapentin all of this uh, can cause acute onset micronus if it is subacute in onset again you would think about drugs because sometimes it can have subacute onset or other metabolic causes again we have gone through the list earlier so i won't repeat them and then uh, quite important thing about paraneoplastic causes as well um in, in subacute onset so you can have this obsoclonus uh, myoclonus syndrome which mm. is kind of it can be paraneoplastic um, we again talked about the PERM syndrome. Some of them can be paraneoplastic. So uh, subacute onset, you would think about uh, screening for cancer in the right kind of clinical scenario. And then, of course, in older adult with relatively subacute onset, you would definitely think about neurodegenerative causes, especially if there is cognitive decline. Prion disease being the typical example of it, but there are other uh, conditions as well, like SSP, for example. Uh, subacute cognitive decline with Parkinsonism. Um, then you think about the Levy Bird disease again can present with myoclonus. CBD, one, as you know, one of the characteristic features is this unilateral myoclonus uh, on the affected side you can get. Um, and, and practically all types of dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, frontotemporal lobe degeneration, mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned earlier, Huntington's disease, all of these can present with myoclonus in later stages anyway. Okay. So the age of onset can give that's you a rough guide. Yeah. yeah, and then of course, uh, uh, then of course uh, there are other kind of factors as well. So you look at are there any alleviating factors? So if there is alcohol improving the symptoms, you are immediately starting to think of uh, myoclonus dystonia as a cause. Um, or if there are clear precipitating factors, then also like you are going back to the metabolic causes. If there is a history of some form of spinal cord injury, like traumatic injury of the spinal cord or demyelination, then, and in the right setting, you would think about spinal myoclonus, if it is a kind of trungle uh, jerking. And uh, we already talked about if there are associated ataxia or epilepsy, you would think about the myoclonic epilepsy syndromes. And then, of course, we shouldn't forget if there are associated systemic features like diabetes, um, deafness, cataracts, or, 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 sorry, not cataract, like optic neuropathy, you think about mitochondrial disease, quite important because mm. mitochondrial disease can often be overlooked as a cause if you, if you don't think about the other systemic manifestations of it. Um, family history, I mentioned it's quite important, so it depends on what is the family history. So if it's a dominant sort of pattern of inheritance, you will think about myoclonus dystonia, uh, DRPLA conditions like that whereas if it is recessive it's a very very long list so you have all the 
PME syndromes, progressive myoclonic epilepsy syndromes, and Gaucher's disease, all, the, all those group of conditions. And then, of course, if it is a mitochondrial pattern, then you think about mitochondrial disease. Uh, we already talked about the features of myoclonus which help. So if it is a myoclonus at rest, you are mo mostly you are uh, dealing with a spinal or a brainstem source of myoclonus or a subcortical source like basal ganglia as well. If it is an action-induced myoclonus, usually cortical in origin. If it is uh, multifocal, again likely to be cortical, distal limbs or face predominantly, again cortical. Generalized myoclonus is usually subcortical like brainstem or spinal but extremely rarely it can be cortical as well and then of course the amplitude I, we already talked about the duration of the myoclonus so kind of it is very distal kind of uh, like a polymini myoclonus type of appearance then you classically described in multiple system atrophy but uh, you can get it in it can be confusing mm. like if you have a peripheral cause like a denervation causing it then also uh, that can also present like a polymini myoclonus okay and um, I guess the, I mean, I, I guess the, the tests and things like that that you would do would depend a lot on, you know, the hypothesis you've reached by the, the end of the history and examination. Are there any tests that you do in general on everyone uh, where, where you have myoclonus or is that not really? Um, yeah, so, so generally kind of uh, the situation where we would, so, so long as there are kind of clear clinical pointers, you can actually, for example, if it's an young adult presenting with uh uh, with myoclonus, um, you would kind of think about genetic testing mm. fairly soon. Um, whereas if it is like a district general hospital situation where you are asked to go to the ward and look at an older patient with myoclonus, you would definitely screen for metabolic causes. Yeah. So you would ask them to, uh, most of the time they already have done it, so you would look at the liver and kidney functions, thyroid functions. Um, correct setting you would think about vitamin E deficiency as well which can actually again present mm. with myoclonus you would look at the infection parameters like um, are there any major acid-based disturbances so uh, for example somebody with COPD sitting there with myoclonus you would immediately want to know what their blood gas looks like so you would kind of you would kind of target your investigations yeah. uh, tailored that way if it is of course if there is a presentation which with cognitive issues or encephalopathy you would think about all the autoantibody mediated uh, uh, encephalitis which can present with myoclonus specifically the as we talked about earlier like if it's a PRM like syndrome you would specifically look for DPPX1 and GAD glycine those group of amphipycin those group of antibodies otherwise you would kind of do a broad thyroid antibodies celiac mm -hmm. antibodies all of these conditions all, all of these do need to be checked uh, if it is an obsoclonus myoclonus again you target uh, specific anti-neuronal antibodies for it because it's a paraneoplastic very often and if there are kind of systemic um, features which are kind of taking you in the direction of a mitochondrial disease then you would uh, want to ideally do a CS of lactate yeah one thing I forgot to mention earlier when uh, in young adult or very young age of onset of myoclonus is glut one deficiency so when if you are going to do a CSF you might as well do it in a fasting state and do a fasting glucose as well and then of course you know if if you are if you are dealing with an older adult with uh, presenting with a what looks like a neurodegenerative process you would probably want to screen for prion disease okay uh, imaging generally um, there are specific situations where imaging can help but it's usually kind of self-evident so usually you have, have um, other features like cognitive decline and things like that where you would expect to see changes of either prion disease or a leukoencephalopathy uh, mitochondrial disease related changes those kind of changes can be seen on a scan so mm. but uh, as i mentioned earlier it's usually self-evident that the scan is probably going to be abnormal because there yeah. are a lot of other things going on like cognitive issues, epilepsy, those kind of things telling you that uh, there is, uh, you can expect to see something on the scan. So, so it sounds like uh, probably by the time the patient sees you in the movement sort of special, uh, in clinic, a scan has probably been done for, yeah. for most of them and yeah. if it hasn't revealed an alter a cause yeah. already, it's unlikely to be that helpful you know once, yeah, yeah yeah it would be fairly obvious that yeah it, 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 it would be see. obvious yeah, and and usually uh, as i said you know clinically also it mm. is kind of uh, usually evident yeah so so lots of patients will have um i don't know like small vessel disease affecting yeah. subcortical structures yeah is, is that something that you would ever sort of be 
convinced as a, as a as a cause for myoclonus, or would that be a little bit uh, far-fetched? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, not usually. We don't come across patients just with small vessel ischemic disease. I don't know the cause for that. Like, if you think about it logically, you would wonder. Yeah. But uh, no, you don't actually see. But so it's, it's more. You you need to dig a bit further. If, yeah. If the, yeah. If the chain, scan is relatively non-specific. Yeah. With a caveat, of course, if if patient has quite severe uh, vascular disease lot of uh, multiple infarcts and sufficient to cause a vascular dementia, then of course they can have myoclonus. So it's yeah. just like any other dementia, you would expect to see myoclonus. But otherwise, somebody who is just having moderate small vessel ischemic disease, no, you would really want to look for other causes. Yeah. Okay, excellent. I feel the, uh, we've, we've talked through a lot there and you've already kind of answered this uh, really, um, you know, during the discussion, but just to just to highlight the role that neurophysiology has in your practice. So you said the Movement Disorder Society are recommending uh, early, you know, if possible, early involvement with neurophysiology. Yeah. So what is it that you tend to request on these on these patients? What are the things that you're looking for? Yeah. So the neurophysiological testing, you can go for very basic things like, um, for example, if you have a strong suspicion that this uh, person is going to have uh, have cortical myoclonus, you could go straight away for just doing an EEG. Yeah. So there are situations where you are suspecting a cortical origin, for example, young person, there is clear history suggestive of uh, uh, epileptic myoclonus, for example, sleep deprivation, bringing on jerking, um, things like that may yeah. actually kind of point in your, the right direction for you and you can just simply do an EEG and if it shows uh, EEG correlates with the uh, with the jerking, then you know that uh, it's actually a kind of a cortical myoclonus and you can just get yeah. down to treating it. Well, it reminds me of a case I think we were both involved with um, of a, someone who was falling over frequently, quite a young yeah. a, a young person and uh, I think... The person the, who had the syrinx. Yeah, and then yeah. The, the yeah. sort of the, the question was whether the syrinx was responsible and I think there was very, very mild myelopathy, but yeah. I think the penny dropped when you saw them and... Uh, you, you actually noticed there was quite a lot of negative myoclonus. So yeah. in a case like that, that was straight. Your first thought was yeah. negative myoclonus, yeah. likely young person yeah. to check for a cortical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Course. So so this, uh, if I remember correctly, this uh, this was quite a young lad, like yeah, 18 yeah. or 19 year old, who had a history of falls going back several years and had a family history of um, syrinx, which was uh, decompressed in his mother. And when he started falling, they kind of put the two and two together and thought it is the syrinx. Yeah. And he had a scan which showed the syrinx. But the surgeon, quite rightly, was not convinced and asked us to see. And um, so he had kind of very mild uh, cortical myoclonus, very distal in the limbs. It was very subtle. I had a video consultation first and I couldn't see anything. But only when I saw the patient, face to face, I kind of picked up this very mild distal twitching in the limbs yeah. and an EEG actually showed that he actually had uh, 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 JME-like EEG and so uh, even though we didn't capture uh, um, his fall on an EEG, I suspected what he was getting was negative myoclonus causing the falls which is well recognized to occur in epileptic myoclonus and yeah. he became asymptomatic once we put him on some levetiracetam. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's a nice case. I guess it stresses the importance of face-to-face consultations. Consultations, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. which I I know we're all struggling with at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, but you can go for more uh, complex testing. So this is not available everywhere. So what you would do is multi-channel EMG, and you would do EEG back averaging, and you would want to do uh, somatosensory work potentials as well. So um, if 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 you don't have all the kind of uh, detailed um, testing availability, you can simply go for an EMG and the EMG duration itself can give you a big clue. For example, for if you are trying to differentiate between a um, functional myoclonus and a non-functional myoclonus. So the functional myoclonus, it's pre- pretty impossible for somebody to produce a very brief duration uh, CMAP. So it is always large amplitude. So, for example, if you are suspecting functional and if you find that the EMG CMAP amplitude is, say, 80 microsecond, that mm. is that argues against it being functional. Mm. So, if it's a short duration burst. So, typically, in, as I said earlier, in cortical myoclonus, the EMG discharges are usually less than 50 milliseconds. It can be up to 70 milliseconds, but usually less than 50 milliseconds. Um, and subcortical, it's a bit wider, so it's usually between 50 and 300, whereas in functional myoclonus, it's 
kind of it is kind of in several milliseconds mm-hmm. um so so that is the kind of differentiating uh, feature so it's much wider yeah and uh, um and and that can actually help you differentiate and then of course uh, ideally what you should be doing is you should be doing the ssps as well so in cortical micronus you get what we call as giant ssps which are kind of very large amplitude and um um potentials you can see uh, which you get in cortical micronus whereas in subcortical micronus either brainstem or basal ganglia you won't get that so again that is one way of differentiating uh, the cortical from a subcortical origin micronus and um you can do eeg back averaging as i mentioned earlier so you can record the eeg and emg at the same time and you can look back using back averaging technique you can look back to for a cortical eeg correlate uh, preceding the emg mm. and uh, if you see the buried shaft potential which suggests a voluntary activation before the jerking then that suggests you of a gain of a functional origin micronus so these are the kind of different ways in which neurophysiology can really help you yeah. but you need really experienced hands to do it and uh, uh, otherwise it's not always helpful yeah excellent well i think that brings us towards the the end of the discussion what yeah what three things would you do? yeah sorry i i think you know one thing that we forgot to mention in investigations is genetic testing which oh, is coming yeah. on in a big way as you know like so the you can there so there are micronus gene panels which are available in most places and um, that can often be helpful and um of course you have to keep in mind the variance of unknown significance and uh, whether you know the there are, can be several different phenotypes for the single gene mutation and vice versa so all of those kind of limitations have to be kept in mind yeah but in the right scenario uh, and if you use it appropriately it can be a very good tool to help you get to the right diagnosis. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Any uh, brilliant so that brings us to uh, to a close. Thank you very much for for your time there. Do you have any um three main tips or I can't think of specific three tips, but I would say kind of um just like in any other uh movement disorder case, it's quite important to uh take the proper history. Uh, quite a lot of it, uh, the diagnostic markers are there in the history itself and then of course you want to see the jerking that's very crucial so more often than not patients stand up in the clinic and you can't actually see anything and in that situation it's quite important for them to get them to send you a video from home so uh, never hesitate to ask patients for uh, home videos if you need to because that can be really really helpful in terms of diagnosis and then of course very targeted uh, investigation so yeah. so that that would be my way of approaching the problem yeah Brilliant. Well, thanks for your time today. Uh, that that's been excellent. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.